On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the February 2018 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation and a lively debate, I think, about a topic that many of us face on a fairly regular basis. Uh, my first guest is Dr. Jose Cardenas Garcia. He is here. He's the assistant professor of medicine and surgery at the Penn State University at Hershey Medical Center, and he is here to talk about uh, his side of the discussion, point, should all initial episodes of hemoptysis be evaluated by bronchoscopy? Yes. Jose, thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. And then the counterside, um, Dr. Koenig, Seth, he's a professor of medicine at the Hoster Northwell School of Medicine, Pulmonary and Critical Care and Sleep Division in the Department of Medicine at Long Island Jewish Medical Center, and he is here to argue the counterpoint. Should all initial episodes of hemoptysis be evaluated by bronchoscopy? No. Seth, thanks for joining us. Awesome to be here. So, um, guys, I mean, Jose, you get to go first. Um, let's, you know, I think... Uh, both you guys do a good job in, in the point-counterpoint written component of sort of outlining the, the type of patient, uh, you know, with hemoptysis. You know, they, they, that, that word means a lot of things. And so, if nothing else, could you set the stage for our listeners in, in the sense of what we're talking about here? So, um, I think we're talking about hemoptysis, and I will define this as the expectoration of blood or blood-stained mucus from the bronchi, larynx, trachea, or lungs. And this is a very common clinical scenario that um, unfortunately uh, can have an explosive clinical presentation and unpredictable course, especially in those cases of massive hemoptysis. But unfortunately as well, there is a lot of variation among uh, pulmonologists and intensivists in terms of management. So Seth and I decided to ask ourselves if we should perform bronchoscopies in all these patients presented with an initial, uh, with the first time hemoptysis. Right, and so um, outline for me then, you know, the, I think one of the things at the very beginning of your article, I mean, you say, you know, you talk about defining hemoptysis, and, um, you know, and, and you said, you know, I, I like how you put it, like, cases where hemoptysis is debatable, such as a nosebleed, et cetera, but then you subdivide it into four distinct clinical scenarios, and I think that those clinical scenarios might help our listeners think about the scenarios yeah. and everything else. Maybe between you and Seth, we can start to hash out, do we have agreement on, you know, any one of these particular scenarios or none of them, you know, et cetera? That, that question goes for me or for Seth? Uh, either one. I mean, you, you guys, you outline, well, here, I'll, I'll, you, you, know, you outline massive hemoptysis, you know, non-massive hemoptysis, but with abnormal imaging, non-massive hemoptysis, but with risk factors for lung cancer, but happen to have a normal radiograph, and then the self-limited non-massive hemoptysis in people with normal imaging and with no risk factors for lung cancer. And I think that's a pretty, I mean, Seth, do you agree that, a, a, you know, they outline it that way? I, I think that's a decent way to start to, to frame the hemoptysis patient. Yeah, I think that uh, we all, when we start learning about hemoptysis, probably whether we have defined it uh, outwardly in uh, e e the way you did it or we're doing it in our heads, I think we're all doing exactly the same thing. I think it's pretty clear that if you have massive hemoptysis, you need to figure out where it's coming from. And whether that be with your bronchoscope first or after you get a CAT scan or stabilize the airways, I think we all agree that uh, you need to take a look. And, and the same thing with uh, abnormal radiographs and hemoptysis, especially in patients who have uh, risk factors. I think Jose and I, uh, and most people would probably agree that uh, bronchoscopy is, is essential uh, in the management of these patients. I think, I think what, what always shapes 
the discussion, especially with fellows and with, with colleagues, is does one size fit all? And can we make blanket statements? And do we follow dogma that says, you know, uh, everybody who has hemoptysis needs a bronchoscopy, just like people used to say, does every, thoris, does every new pleural effusion need a thoracentesis? And I think that when you break apart, uh, it really truly is the sum is greater than all of the parts of, of each of the individual little risks that, that we look at. And I think for us and for me and probably for you as an IP person and Jose, we're asked to do a lot of bronchoscopy on patients. And we have to ask ourselves when we get that, uh, that, that patient, should we be doing a bronchoscopy? And when we see a patient with normal airways on a CT and normal airways obviously on a chest x-ray without risk factors, yeah, maybe we may say to ourselves, all right, uh, maybe they just had a cold or bronchitis. But the one that obviously gets us all nervous is the patient with risk factors. And I think that really the discussion probably between Jose and myself and, and you is what do you do with those patients who have a first episode of hemoptysis who actually have risk factors for malignancy? Jose, what do you think? Do you want to... I mean, do yeah, we agree so, that massive hemoptysis probably involves a bronchoscopy? <laughs> I, I think yes. Um, not only because it can... Uh, help you to stabilize the airway for a more definitive treatment, but also because it can give you uh, a tissue diagnosis, especially, which is very important this year, right, um, the, the, in yeah. this era. But uh, no massive hemoptysis with a normal imaging studies. I think, again, that obviously putting benefits and risk uh, together and obviously discussing with the team, yes. But uh, I think that the debate was, um, or it should be centering what in this specific subset of patients with hemoptysis with normal imaging, and I think that Seth and I, we both agree to disagree uh, if uh, they need to be examined or not. Um, <clears throat> I think as well, and I'm quite aware that Seth has valid points on, on his analysis of Dr. Thirumaran paper, who um, we showed a complementary diagnostic role of both Bronx and uh, CAT scans in patients with hemoptysis with normal chest X-ray and positive risk factor for malignancy. He described that, that in his rebuttal. Um, but um, I will invite uh, the listeners as well to review the paper of Dr. Somadikus. Uh, we showed as well that 21% of patients with both negative chest X-ray and CAT scan have positive bronchoscopic findings. I would like to add as well that uh, there is a recent paper um, published in the European Respiratory Journal this year that prospectively evaluated patients with hemoptysis. This study, which involved around 450 patients, confirmed not only the complementary role of both CAT scans and bronchoscopy, and actually bronchoscopy increased the yield of, um, of CAT scans from 77 to 84. There, there were only 24 patients of these 450 uh, patients with normal CAT scans. These uh, 24 patients had some abnormal bronchoscopic findings. Four of them had upper airway lesions. 18 of them had microbiological diagnosis of infections, and two of them had endobronchial lung cancers. I know that Seth will say, yeah, it's a very small number, right? But interestingly, these two patients with lung cancer um, had, were very high-risk patients. They were heavy smokers, they were males, and approximately 70 years old. So I would say with this data, based on these three papers, we could not underestimate the diagnostic role of bronchoscopy in this specific group. I believe as well that... Go ahead, sir. No, I was going to say that I can't disagree with anything 
that you've said except uh, to say that we need to individualize medicine. And the, my, my issue with protocols is that, uh, and dogma, is that you, we become lumpers. And I think medicine deserves more than that. And I think that if a 70-year-old heavy smoker comes into my office, having homopathies from no other reason is not sick, uh, I think it's quite clear to me that the risk-benefit ratio of, of diagnostic bronchoscopy certainly is in the favor of doing it, especially if a patient is nervous. We have to take into the patient's mm -hmm. account uh, as well. Um, data is massaged in any way that uh, suits the massager. And while two patients out of the 454 had endobronchial uh, lesions, I can't deny that if a person in the same situation came to see me that I would not do bronchoscopy. But again, I believe that you need to take each each of the patients separately and look at the data and see if it applies. As I said in the article, obviously cystic fibrosis patients, they, they, they cough up blood all the time for our first episode. And you know many of them don't need to have bronchoscopy. The 18 folks that got a microbiological diagnosis, um, maybe who cares? Uh, you know, it does, the paper doesn't go on to say that, that you know, what they did for them uh, actually helped in, 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 in in making sure that they were okay. So at the end of the day, you have two patients out of 454 that got uh, a, a diagnostic bronchoscopy. And while I am not belittling any one patient, we just have to be careful with the way that we, the way that we look at data. Yeah, I, I, I think that we can, um, we can agree in two points here with that. That one, that we need more studies, large, well-designed studies to identify better these two groups that might need a comprehensive diagnostic assessment, and actually, more importantly, how these improve the survival and, and the morbidity of these patients. And secondly, I agree as well with said that uh, the bronchoscopy should not be a knee-jerk knee reaction in all cases of hemoptysis without taking into account the clinical presentation, the yield of the, the procedure, right, and the benefit risk ratios of uh, a bronchoscopy, especially if the patient is going to be under conscious sedation or general anesthesia. Maybe the, maybe the thing. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say maybe the maybe the reflex here, or uh, and I'll throw the word dogma out, should be that the question should be asked. That that to, you know, homopsis happens so that and it sounds silly because it seems to me that it would be almost it seems to automatically generate some level of a consultative question. But let's assume it doesn't. That if a patient comes in with homopsis and has and it's not massive and there's not an, you know a mass on imaging, so it's the quote normal imaging. Um, that at a minimum, whatever, whatever, you know, we're clearly debating what should be done, but at a minimum, the question should be asked to a bronchoscopist, is there a role for bronchoscopy here? So that that pro-con debate with the patient and with the data and pro-con debate with the type of patient you have in front of you, risk factors, no risk factors, how much risk factors, blah, 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 to then make the decision in a consultative capacity of whether a bronchoscopy should be done. So, so would that satisfy the, it's not a, you know, a knee-jerk, everybody gets a bronch, but it should be the knee-jerk that at least the question should be asked. It might be rejected. Mm -hmm. it's, it's essential. Actually, it's, uh, I mean, it's, that, that has to be. I mean, if, especially if the, present, the presentation of the patient's complaint is homoptosis. I mean, you have to ask the question, why, why is the patient having homoptosis? And if I can't answer that, does that mean that one should then go on having a further study if the CT scan is normal? I agree completely with you. Yep. Same here. So 
the the question then, just to go back and forth with, with the two of you, because you know, any any kind of pro con on um, a procedure is clearly going to be a risk benefit analysis at a minimum, right? In the sense of, you know, hey, let's undergo an invasive procedure. Okay, well, how invasive? And what are the what are the true risks to that procedure versus what are the benefits? And if even if the benefits are small, if that outweighs the risk, you know, what is the downside? And relatively speaking, the cost of a bronchoscopy is not all that great, uh, at least judging by its reimbursement. And so, you know, is, there's, there is an immediate argument of, you know, let's put it this way, if a patient um, vomited up blood, the reflex to go to an EGD uh, is, uh, the threshold seems to be pretty low. So why are, is bronchoscopy held to a different standard? I'll throw that out for both of you. Uh, I think um, it's because... Um uh, 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 during general, general fellowship, uh, pulmonary and critical care, we are not very familiar with, uh, with uh, or at least we're familiar, but we are not trained specifically in taking care of patients with very uh, poor cardiopulmonary reserve. And, um, and that's why, for example, patients uh, or very well-seasoned clinicians or um, physicians who have undergone uh, or underwent um, interventional pulmonology training, and they're more, um, I would say, familiar with, minim um, with minimizing the risk of the procedure, higher yield, right? And actually, um, the, uh, uh, the length of the procedure can be uh, decreased significantly. So, uh, and if there is any complications, they tend to know, or they tend to be aware how to manage those. So there is a, uh, unfortunately, there is a misconception that a bronchoscopy is a, a, a very um, a dangerous procedure, especially in patients who have poor cardiopulmonary reserve. It depends on what you're going to do or what you're aiming to do, right? Uh, and you have to take into account um, all, all the comorbidities of, of, of the patient before. So, right. so I mean, but, but, I, but I think to answer Kyle's question, I think we could agree that in most people's hands, uh, bronchoscopy is extremely safe, especially if you're doing it in a, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in an outpatient or a bronchoscopy suite with minimum minimal sedation. I think you know people can do a diagnostic bronchoscopy in you know, five or ten minutes uh, with minimal with minimal sedation and minimal minimal risk. I do think though the, the, he asked. You ask a, an interesting question, and I, I think the answer is that I think most gastroenterologists, and especially people who work in, in, in a critical care environment like we do, uh, you know, throwing up blood is never normal, and and that the the risk of uh, of, of hematemesis. Uh, could could be immediately uh, life-threatening, whereas uh, there are a lot of diagnoses of minimal hemoptysis, especially if the person has bronchitis or has cystic fibrosis or things that predispose them. I, I think that one could argue that, that, that it's not really apples to apples, that, that it may be a little bit different here. And I don't think uh, I could argue ever uh, about doing a, a, a bronchitis when the risk is really minimal in any patient who has hemoptysis with risk factors who says to me, I want to know. So, so I, I, don't get me wrong, even the, the point and counterpoint is a neat way to bring up a, 
a problem that exists and to, to look at the literature from two different perspectives. Uh, I simply maintain that with good use of one's brain and hands and history taking that sometimes hemoptysis uh, has a reason for it that doesn't need to be jumped on by a bronchoscopy. That's, that's, that's what I maintain. So l let me ask the two of you then. So, so I got a 62-year-old without a recent URI history, known diagnosis of COPD, heavy smoker, quit five years ago, had a CT scan a year ago that was negative as part of a lung cancer screening, and comes in now with hemoptysis submassive, it's self-limited. What do you do? Because that's essentially the core of this debate, right? They have a normal image, they have risk factors, um, but it was a self-limited hemoptysis, but it didn't have a part of the history. So if I, if I threw in the guy had a URI recently, Seth, would you be comfortable watch and wait? Would you re-image? Would you assume he's going for another CT next year because he's going to be scheduled for his lung cancer screening? You know, how do you play this off? Versus, you know, do you take this guy to bronchoscopy because he does indeed have lung cancer risk uh, factors and he didn't have a URI. So where's the blood coming from? I mean, I think clearly that patient, as described, would get a bronchoscopy by any of us. I think, I think clearly there the risk benefit ratio is quite is quite clear and you know the, the way you the way you bring up the uh, the the case i think you, you pose a good argument the way you throw in well what if he just had a little uri you know it's just like they say uh you know if you give somebody aspirin and then and, and they now have blood in their stool now well maybe maybe that's because there's a lesion there that now is bleeding because you gave him some aspirin uh, i think that anybody who has heavy risk factors um, without a clear identifiable reason why that they should have hemoptysis is going to get a bronchoscopy in, uh, in my world, and especially what the patient wants to do. Now, if you said to me, the patient's like, well, I really think I was just sick. It only lasted a day or two, and as I felt better, it went away. Um, do you mind if we just uh, do the CAT scan as scheduled for, um, you know, for the lung cancer screening? Because I clearly make that, that distinction, in the, or at least bring that up in the argument that you know, these, these folks should be having CT scans. And in fact, um, one of the studies looked at, because you know, you, everybody can pull their study up. It's just like the favorite pizza place. You know, everybody's got their favorite pizza place. So you can look studies up, and there are some studies coming out that suggest that high-resolution CT scans, they don't miss even endobronchial disease, or at least uh, in some of the studies, they didn't miss any of the lesions. In fact, they were more sensitive and specific at picking up the reasons for hemoptysis than even the bronchoscopy. So, I don't know, I think it's, that's why I think medicine is so damn interesting, because you have the science on one side, the voodoo on the other, your magic eight ball as a third, and your clinical intuition, you know? Yeah. Jose, what do you think? Yeah. Um, so I think that based on the history that you're uh, telling us, I will propose a patient to have a bronchoscopy for all the, 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 the clinical presentation for the risk factors that he had, right? Um, uh, I will argue, though, with, uh, with said that uh, there is, I mean, it has been already a couple of years already that autofluorescence and, and narrowband imaging actually have been another part of our, our armamentarium in order to discover um, endobronchial or submucosal lesions as well, and those cannot be picked up uh, by high-resolution CAT scans. However, you might say, yeah, um, he will only, is only valuable for a squamous cell, and, and that only represents 30% of the cases, and there is not uh, long-term um, 
long-term um, uh, natural history. We don't know the natural history of these pre-malignant lesions. Right. But again, I will, I will still take a peek at, at the airway of the patient. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to, again, you know, if, you, if we start to hash and dash the numbers, you know, the, the, it is a, if you're finding an endobronchial lesion, and I, you're right, I wish some of the papers would highlight more um, what was ultimately the outcomes found with the bronchoscopy, mm -hmm. meaning not just I found this. Okay, was the patient able to be resected for cure, or did you just diagnose essentially a non-curable, you know, ultimately went on to be stage four and... You know, you could have made this diagnosis whenever you didn't change the outcome. Um, you know, and, and were these infections, you know, did they, did they, quote, matter? You know, did you, did you end up discovering, you know, say something like tuberculosis, which obviously would have a public health ramifications as well as for the patient? Or did you just find pneumococcus and the patient was already going to be given an antibiotic anyway? Um, that would be something I think more valuable to help steer the discussion of the value of bronchoscopy besides the obvious, I found a malignancy was bleeding and I, you know, APC'd it so it stopped bleeding. Yeah, so uh, I think that uh, now um, what we can do uh, has changed in the last couple of years, or at least in the last decade, right? So uh, we we have other tools that we can use when we found submucosals or premalignant lesions like um, photodynamic therapy, uh, right. electrocautery, and there is a specific actually guidelines um, by the ACCP um, published in CHESS that recommend how often you should follow those patients as well after this type of uh, quote-unquote palliative uh, treatments when the patient is not a surgical candidate. I will argue as well that um, although how many times, and I will ask the, the listeners as well, how many times we find lung cancer and then when we get the biopsies, there is also, and we perform a BAL or transbronchial biopsies, there is either real um, infection and we have to treat that as a, or colonization as well. And sometimes, again, uh, bronchitis or a pneumonia can be a concomitant uh, process along with um, or can exacerbate even more the hemoptysis secondary to a long, a long malignancy, right? So I think, uh, I think uh, those points um, should, be, should be taken into account when, when we are thinking in, in performing a bronchoscopy or not on the patient. What, one of the things, can we, uh, let's, um, let's try to outline for our listeners, because maybe, the, it, it, it sounds like the one thing we agree on, one, consultation for, you know, the homoptysis, especially in this scenario, like we're outlining the risk factor patient, or even the non-risk factor patient, but with the normal chest imaging. Um, it's so at least that this intelligent discussion can be had with the patient and reviewing the, the pro-con with the patient and, and then proceeding based on, obviously, both the skill and expertise of the operator and then the resources available. So I I want to address the resources available because obviously for our listeners, many come from all different areas and all over the world and, and don't have a dedicated interventional pulmonologist with a thoracic surgeon on backup and an interventional radiology department on 24-hour call, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which is outlined as sort of the, you know, dream team for homoptysis. So what are some of the minimums? Let's, let's outline the, hey, I'm a pulmonologist and I am a solo practitioner in a community hospital and I'm by myself. I have a Bronx suite or I have an OR that I can get to, what needs to be present at a minimum if I want to be able to handle homoptysis? You know, um, and, and, you know, not your dream list. You're just, you know, here's what a minimum requirement. Okay. So I will say you need a bronchoscope. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That one, I think, that was assumed. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you need a bronchoscope first, obviously. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I would say if the patient has um, um, airway security, it should be, adequate or should be actually great to have a CAT scan before 
um, yes. before performing any bronchoscopy because that can serve as a roadmap, right? If the patient has, doesn't have an airway secure and uh, the patient is still in the AD, I will say we should uh, intubate with a large um, endotracheal tube, cough, um, 8, 8.5, right? And immediately after the airway is secure, um, 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 have um, long isolation with a Fogarty balloon that you can use or an hard endobronchial blocker. And the Fogarty balloons that I use are usually number four or five with a three-way stopcock um, uh, um, um, with a bronchoscope. I'm actually using a forceps that can um, can allow me to deploy the Fogarty balloon without um, using the working channel, right? After right. securing that, the patient goes for the CAT scan. Um, and then, um, or if you have, and it will be actually more easier to place to use an art endobronchial balloon that, um, I mean, there are many videos of how to, how to deploy that. One thing that I have found um, very useful as well um, is uh, using um, a lot of, uh, sorry, sedation and also paralysis. And I, I would like to stress that out a, lo a lot because if, for example, you're just putting the patient on propofol and fentanyl and the patient coughs up, the balloon might be displaced, and then you have a still hemoptysis. So paralyzing the patient will be important, transferring to a NICU, and, and then asking for help, right? Um, either but, but, again, but again, are we talking about the patient who has a massive hemoptysis, or are we talking about all so comers case, with hemoptysis? So in this case, so in this case massive hemoptysis. It was a, I should have framed that better. Massive hemoptysis, what's your minimum to do list, or minimum possessions list, because you know the articles. You know we talk about you know you have you know you need APC or you can laser cryo blah blah blah. Plenty of people don't have that, and if they're not a principally a bronchoscopist as a uh, from their job, they're not necessarily going to have that equipment. And I, but, I agree, but, and, I, and I mean it sounded wonderful what you said, uh, but for instance, we had a patient just a week or two ago had massive hemoptysis with a, with an obvious uh, mass on a CT scan, and. You know, very rapidly that patient started to deteriorate. So if you can consider that we really had very little time, we didn't have a team around us, so what did we do? And what we did is exactly what you started to say. I think with massive hemoptysis, a, at a minimum, you have to be able to take control of, of a person's airway. And I think that if you start with that idea, you know, anybody with massive hemoptysis, if you're going to go in and do bronchoscopy, you have to be ready, if not up front, which is what I would, would do, is you secure the airway. And if that means um, with a, a large endotracheal tube, like you said, then that's what you, you need to do. And then you need to quickly decide, am I going to put the, you know, the bad lung down? And people forget that. You know, that people forget that sometimes just turning the patient on their side, get the bad lung down out of the way. And so we intubated the patient, paralyzed the patient, put the bad lung down immediately. And then I think anybody, you know, and you can't just have anybody take care of massive hemoptysis. So if they're calling you to take care of the massive hemoptysis, even if you're in a third world area, you need a bronchoscope and an endobronchial blocker. I mean, I think those really are your two essential things. In fact, all we did was paralyze him, put an endobronchial blocker in the left main stem, and then deal with the rest of it where you have more time. And if you're in a, if you're in a situation where you don't have that capacity, well, then you can transfer a person like Correct. that. Correct. Uh, and, and I think that, that anybody who... Go ahead, I'm sorry. 
No, so we all agree then. That's the. I mean, I, I just I wanted to outline just sort of the the bare minimum, and I think you know um, both of you also talk about you know sort of mentally doing the, the the practice for this. I mean, I can tell you with my own fellows, you know, if we're taking just a generic transbronchial biopsy, I tell them I say, all right, let's pretend that a massive bleed just happened. Tell me what you're going to do, you know. And so it's the whole like have run a run a fake scenario, if you will, um, but at the same time being mentally prepared. What are the steps you can take? And of course, you know, the ACCP offers courses at chest and offers at their headquarters. I mean, you, there's lots of ways to get the training to be, be prepared when this eventuality does happen. I just, I wanted to make sure our listeners understood, you know, some of the, the if they've not dealt with massive homopsis, that they're prepared to deal with massive homopsis. Well, I, and I think we use, and we use a checklist approach. I mean, I think, you know, that's one place where protocols are actually quite helpful. Because you never want to be in that situation where all of a sudden the patient has massive hemoptysis and you forgot to ask if there's a Fogarty catheter or an endobronchial blocker or do you have paralytics, where is anesthesia, where is my airway box. I think that protocolizing that is an extremely important part of any routine when it comes to procedures. Yeah, and I would I will recommend as well, uh, and I have found this very common, that the majority of the ICUs have uh, only diagnostic scope. And, um, so I would recommend having a therapeutic scope, right, right. with a working channel of 2.8, 3.2, so you can pass, you have better suction, you can pass more tools through that, and also having an armed endobronchial blocker in the, in the airway cart, right, or the bronchoscopy cart available. Right. Right. Excellent. And then, guys, I mean, just let's going back, um, you know, the, let's go back to the, to the one scenario where I think we're, we're, you know, we hash out our differences, which is the, you know, the, the person with submassive homopsis, you know, self-limiting even, but risk factors, uh, or no risk factors, but has a normal CT scan. Um, if we agree that this person needs a bronchoscopy, and, and, and you know, we, I think there's, we, we differ on the scenarios of threshold for bronch, but clearly being driven in a patient-oriented world by the patient as well, what, what do you bring with you into that bronchoscopy situation? Jose, what do, you, um, what, what do you make sure, I mean, clearly you have all your stuff in case an emergency happens, but what is, what's your plan when you're going in? You have a CT that's, quote, normal. So what are you going to do when you go in? Uh, usually, for those cases, I either do conscious sedation or I put an LMA. Um, um, most of the time, I think conscious sedation will be more than enough. I use a diagnostic um, scope if the case is not massive uh, with... Right. Um, with also with uh, MBI technology, so I can evaluate those, uh, the mucosa of the lesion. And if I find um, any kind and, of... And uh, MBI is narrow band imaging, just for our listeners. That's, co that's correct, sorry. Yeah, I forgot sorry. to um, tell it <laughs> out. Um, but also I have always in my room a um, uh, uh, Fogarty balloon, uh, number four or number five, right? Uh, I have epinephrine always available, one over 10,000 uh, ready as well and cold sailing as well, right? And uh, uh, forceps, uh, forceps of two, 2.0 millimeters, just in order to deploy the stand. I usually, what I do as well is, and I think uh, this should be stressed out as well, prepare your team, right? Uh, tell what you're planning to do with your team, tell them step by step what you're planning to do, and what are the, the potential complications that can occur. So I usually, uh, before every case, I spell it out what I'm going to need, and also, uh, and also a possible um, possible tools that I'm, I want to have available inside a room, but do not open. For example, right. 
If I have a patient, uh, I said, you know what, um, this patient came with no massive hemoptysis. I'm suspecting an, an endobronchial lesion. Please have um, Fogarty balloon. I need to have EPI available. I need to have cryo or APC, sorry, um, APC available. And if we find a big mass by surprise, we can always switch for a rigid if necessary or not, right? Um, <clears throat> and also have uh, always a therapeutic scope. I usually tend to start always with diagnostic, but I can switch that immediately if necessary, right? Drilling is yeah. very important, how you feel comfortable, how your team is comfortable as well, and if, you have an if you're lucky enough to have an anesthesiology, they're also taking into account or describing or um, having close communication with them because, for example, if you're going to use APC and the patient cannot tolerate FIO2 less than 40%, then you have to use other 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 tools available, right? Cool. Seth, any and so I mean, again, not not the if you take them to the bronch, but let's say you're in a scenario where okay, we're taking you to bronchoscopy. Do you agree essentially with what Jose just listed? Uh, absolutely. Uh, the only the only thing is that we we talked about the mass of hemoptysis. I think for you know a CT scan that's uh, read as completely normal by your own eyes, uh, I think that. Every bronchoscopy that, that I do has a checklist approach, and that checklist approach has just about everything that, uh, that Jose uh, rattled off, except that, you know, except for a few things, I have x-ray vision in my eyes, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't need the narrow band. But, uh, but I think that I, what people don't recognize is the importance of a checklist, of saying to yourself, every bronchoscopy is potentially life-threatening even if there is a normal CT scan. And if you do that and you say to yourself, what do I need at a minimum, I still believe at a minimum you're going to need your ice cold saline, which I think people don't use enough of, that's just my personal uh, opinion, you know, your epinephrine, your endobronchial blocker. I think people should really know how to use a, the regular, you know, endo, big endobronchial blocker. It's good to have Fogarty catheters around uh, too, but not a lot of people are going to have APC and cryo and, you know, those types of things. In a, only at certain centers, obviously, are you going to have that. But I think if people have a checklist approach and say to themselves, look, if something happens and I'm on one side, I'm going to put the bad lung down, I'm going I'm going to try to stop the bleeding with, with the saline that's sitting right next to me, the, the epinephrine that's right next to me, and also your team. I think people forget that you can't just talk to your fellow, and, and lots of people don't even have a fellow, right? Lots of people are doing bronchoscopy on their, on their own. You have to have good communication with your staff, and I think that's a very essential. And, and, and before every procedure, whether it is going to be a technically difficult one or may just be an unexpected one, we always run through with the nurses, okay, here's what's going to happen if. If I ask you for this, if I ask you for this, if this happens, if this happens. And, and when you do that over and over again, it becomes such a routine, just like anything else that you do, just like a pilot before they take off. Yeah. So uh, just, uh, I remember what um, uh, my mentor and Seth mentor as well, Dr. Mayo, used to say, right? Anticipation, preparation. Simplicity, speed, and confirmation are essential for any procedures, and I think that applies also for hemoptysis. I would like to add, though, that um, we forgot something important, and I think that we should stress out that the management of massive hemoptysis um, is multidisciplinary. So, for example, when I, whenever I have a patient with massive hemoptysis, I'm, the first thing that I do, see the patient, discuss benefits and risks, I set up my bronch and my team, but I also call my interventional radiologist 
yep. right, to have them aware. Hey, by the way, I'm taking this patient for bronchoscopy. This is what I'm planning to do. I'm going to give you the localization. I'm going to get tissue, but I want to have this patient, after my bronchoscopy, transfer immediately to the interventional radiology suite for uh, bronchial arterial embolization, right? And you have also your backup from your thoracic surgery. Uh, right. thoracic surgery division as well. So it's again, it's just not one person uh, show, right? It's multidisciplinary. Yeah, you know, that's a very important thing you just brought up. Uh, very important because, you know, just going back to the patient who had the endobronchial blocker in the left main stem in my ICU, the next, you know, the next thing that occurred was, you know, interventional radiology, thoracic. Uh, the problem is, as, as Kyle was bringing out, we also have to take into the take into the picture that not everybody is going to have all of these things uh, available. available to them. Uh, but I think you're right. I think preparation uh, is, is very important, and, and we always alert people uh, if we think that we're going to, you know, anybody with massive hemoptysis for sure. Yeah. Uh, because you're in doubt. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, please. No, no, I just, uh, I, I have, and I think a very wise um, pulmonologist as well from the community who have, the only, the only thing that they have done is just putting an endobronchial balloon and sending the patient right away to uh, a larger tertiary hospital. And I think that's completely appropriate, right? So when, when in doubt, ask for help. Right, so um, there is nothing wrong just controlling the airway, securing the airway, which is the, the main uh, priority, and then transferring the patient. Right, keep, if you don't have keep your, uh, keep your patient from keep your patient from drowning. Yep. Well, guys, we've been we've been talking for a while. Are there any key points in your in the point counterpoint? Which, and again, for our listeners, I highly encourage you to read. There's excellent discussions in there, and a, and a very nice re re review of the literature on this discussion. Um, but is there anything we failed to mention or talk about? Anything I mean, we hashed and dashed and kind of broke it down, and then and then you know went through a sort of checklist of you know what you know at a bare minimum you should be thinking about and have prepared. But is there anything we forgot, guys? Anything just to, you know to wrap it up? So we because we've been talking for a little bit. Um, you go, you want to go first, Seth? No, go ahead, Tose. Uh, 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 I, I think just, uh, um, I just want to reiterate that um, uh, whatever intervention we perform, we should be very prudent and, and have um, science behind it, right? And if it is part of our responsibility as physicians to be cognizant in what we should, that we should always weigh risks, benefits, costs, and patient expectations before any procedure. I think, having said that, I think that bronchoscopy is very safe in experience hands. It's easy, easily accessible uh, for the majority of the pulmonologists that we have in our community and, and is uh, key for the diagnosis and treatment of hemoptysis. It is complementary to CAT scan. It actually increases the, the yield and CAT scan actually serves as a roadmap for bronchoscopy, right? And it should be always considered for patients who have massive hemoptysis and in patients as well with non-massive hemoptysis with abnormal imaging studies of risk factors for lung cancer, right? Yeah, I, I, the only thing I wanted to add was exactly what you just said, and that is that I, I think um, I get a lot of consultations before even CAT scans are performed, and I think it's very, very essential to have, a, you know, ha have that radiology before you go in. I don't know what you're, you know, Kyle, what you think, but uh, I think the CAT scan is uh, an extremely important uh, procedure to have performed prior to anybody doing uh, a bronchoscopy, because I think it really puts you into one of those four categories, and I think those four categories are really helpful in stratifying what you need to do next, and also the urgency. 
Right. Mm-hmm. With, with the only exception being the mass of hemoptysis, because until yeah. you have obviously uh, airway secured, yeah. Yeah. you know, you uh, know, we we're not going to roll them down to the tube of truth uh, of with course, a secured of course. airway. <laughs> yeah. of course. One really impo- one really important also uh, to, uh, thing to say uh, to our colleagues there: um, know your equipment. Right. Um, you can have the therapeutic scope or APC and endobronchial balloon, but if you don't know how to deploy it, just go to the same center, open one that is expired, and practice there. Practice until you master. Right. We should we should be always um, be aware of what we have and how to use it. Sometimes we have it and we don't know, and then you are in the middle of the, the emergency and you don't know and you run into yeah. issues. The, right? the, the, the bronchial blocker instruction book is you should not be staring at it while someone's bleeding. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right. There, there are lots of videos in YouTube. I, yeah, I can true. tell you, I've learned many things. In, I, can, I have learned a lot of things in YouTube. Absolutely. Well, guys, this was a great discussion. And as a bronchoscopist, I'm going to declare Jose the winner. Um, but, uh, <laughs> Thank you, Seth. <laughs> Sorry, Seth. <laughs> Sorry, Seth, you lose. But, uh, yeah. No, this was great, guys. Thanks so much for your time. And, and I know our listeners have definitely enjoyed this discussion. I appreciate it. Thank you, Thank guys, you. too. And Happy New Year. All right. Happy talk New to you guys Year. Later. Take care. Happy okay, New Year. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.